Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. We continue in our series on the second half of world history with our 27th podcast and our continuing discussion on the impact and uh, the ongoing at this point in chronological history of the Second World War. In the 26th podcast, we looked, began to look at the significant events in the years of 1944 to 1945. We examined the impact of D-Day, what D-Day was, why it was so difficult to establish that beachhead, why the Allies under the leadership of Dwight Eisenhower were successful, who this woman was known as Axis Sally, as well as Tokyo Rose. We then looked at the numbers that resulted as, a re, as the successful landing of D-Day, and then moving along, why it was so slow for the Allies to advance all the way until December of 1944, when Adolf Hitler still had enough men, equipment, weapons, and supplies to launch his last major offensive on the Western frontier. And then we looked at Berlin falling and ended with the Nazis falling completely on May 8th, 1945, after Hitler had committed suicide on April 30th. So in this 27th podcast, we're going to look now, as I switch gears now, to the other major theater of the Second World War, that lying in the Pacific Ocean. Remember again that once the conclusion of the European War was over, once that had drawn down, it wasn't over for America, wasn't over for many of our allies, because there was still Japan to fight on the opposite side of the globe. In the Pacific theater, the allies, especially those that had experience fighting Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, the allies were astounded at how differently the Japanese fought, again, compared to the Germans. Initially, it would seem that it would have been much easier for the Allies to get to the main islands of Japan by simply reversing the island-hopping campaign that Japan had used to conquer so much of the Pacific Rim. However, where the Allies had to get into hand-in-hand combat with the, with the Japanese, it was truly found, they were finding out that this was a very different population to fight entirely. To give you an idea just who the Allies were fighting in these Japanese people, rather than asking any American soldier, let's just look at Shozo Tomonaga, who was a Japanese army lieutenant when he arrived in China to lead 20 soldiers. He was shocked by what he saw. Tomonaga was a gentle and studious boy, and I'm reading now from James Bradley's book, Flyboys, on page 55, just to put this into perspective. Tomonaga was a gentle 
and studious boy. He had made his parents proud by graduating from a prestigious Tokyo Imperial University in Japan, the equivalent of Harvard and Oxford rolled into one. Tomonaga had planned for a peaceful civilian career, but was drafted and soon found himself in China as a lieutenant in the Emperor's army. Fresh out of officer's school, he had never seen battle. Decades later, he remembered what made his skin crawl that day. I'll never forget meeting them, Tobinaga recalled. When I looked at the men of my platoon, I was stunned. They had evil eyes. They weren't human eyes, but the eyes of leopards or tigers. They'd experienced many battles, and I was completely green. I'd seen nothing. How could I give these guys orders or even look into those faces? I lost all my confidence. Among the men were new conscripts, two-year men and three-year men. The longer the men had been at the front, the more their evil eyes appeared, end quote. Bradley goes on to write towards the end of page 55 that, quote, a dehumanized enemy is easy to kill. And Japanese soldiers were instructed that they were not dealing with human beings at all, but rather devils. The idea of treating the Chinese as beasts was not informal scuttlebutt, but a command from officers whose directives had to be considered orders directly from the emperor. Bradley then goes on to describe, taking from another text, just what the training actually went through. It's quite lengthy, it's revolting, it's enough to make my skin crawl, and I more than encourage you to read not only Flyboys, but even Flags of Our Father by James Bradley. It's a phenomenal couple of books, and you can tell that Mr. Bradley took hours of painstaking research to put these two texts together. But I would like to just finish off about what the training ultimately looks like for the Japanese army. And James Bradley goes on to write on page 57, quote, As the last stage of their training, we made them bayonet a living human, Tomonaga said. When I was a company commander, this was used as a finishing touch to training for the men and a trial of courage for others, other officers. Prisoners were blindfolded and tied to poles. The soldiers dashed forward to bayonet their target, at the shout of charge. Some stopped on their way. We kicked them and made them do it. After that, a man could do anything easily. The prisoners, again blindfolded and tied to the post, a circle was drawn in red chalk around the area of the heart on their grimy clothes. As the bayonet training began, as the bayonet training began, excuse me, the instructor bellowed out, ready? The red circle is where the heart is. That's the one place you're prohibited to stab. Understand? I thought that the instructor had marked the area to make it easier for the new recruits to stab the heart. But that was my misunderstanding. It was, unfortunately, to make the prisoners last as long as possible. So this just provides a glimpse 
into how different the soldiers, the Allied soldiers, would be facing and who they would be fighting in this Pacific theater of war. A lot of that came to a head, or is accurately depicted, with the attempted takeover and eventually successful takeover of the island of Iwo Jima. Iwo Jima, and in fact, I strongly encourage you to pause the podcast right now and in the search engine, type in Iwo Jima and just look at the images of it. We are not talking a massive island here. It's a relatively small island, but it was the last defense. Indeed, it was, we'll find out, it was an ingenious fortress, a blockhouse, perhaps in all of military history. But it was the last defense of the Japanese mainland and it had to be taken by the Allies at any cost. Simultaneously, it had to be defended by the Japanese at any cost. It was a battle that was scheduled to last less than a week, and sadly, it would last for over a month, 36 days total. The United States landing with our Allies was absolutely flawless. Unlike what it was like unlike in the experiences of trying to crawl up and sail up to the sands in Normandy on D-Day under constant German gunfire, here there was no Japanese gunfire. In fact, there was no trace of the 13,000 estimated Japanese soldiers anywhere on that island. Yes, the island was bombarded by aerial assaults days before, and they didn't quite bomb it as much as they had hoped to. But surveillance was indicating that the island may have been deserted, because if anything, possibly a straggler or two soldier left, the island didn't look inhabited at all. And the landing appeared to back that up. But reality soon set in, arguably after the most famous picture in all of human military history was taken. And again, if you have the opportunity to pause the podcast and type in your search engine, flag raising at Iwo Jima. It was that flag that was raised on February 23rd, 1945. It was those flag raisers on Mount Suribachi, the highest point on the island of Iwo Jima. And that's after that picture was taken, is when the American and allies sadly found out that Iwo Jima, the battle for it, had yet to begin. Because there weren't 13,000 defenders on the island, as had been predicted. There were well over 20,000 Japanese soldiers alive and willing to fight to the death. But I'd like to pause before we move on to the actual island, to the actual picture, or excuse me, to the discussion of taking of the island of Iwo Jima, to take a look at that picture of the six flag raisers at Iwo Jima. Due to advances in technology and the searching of military records, it has been debated who exactly those six flag raisers were. For a few years, the very front flag raiser, known as Harlan Block, turned out that it might have been Hank Hansen. But again, there's confusion about that. 
John Bradley, the father of the author of Flyboys and Flags of Our Fathers, James Bradley, turns out that John Bradley may not have been in that actual picture either. The reason being is because there technically were two flag raisings. The first flag raising, John Bradley is, or James Bradley is more confident his father would have been involved in the first flag raising rather than the second that was photographed by James Rosenthal, the photographer. Rather, the first flag, when it went up, the Secretary of Defense, Forrestal, he demanded that that flag come back down because he wanted to hang it in his office when he returned to the United States. So, of course, the men did as, as was instructed or ordered. And with that, the first flag came down, and then they put the second flag up. And that's when Mr. Rosenthal was coming by with his camera and saw that flag going up at that perfect angle and took his famous, arguably the most famous picture in all of military, if not human history. The reason being, though, for the confusion is simply because, again, those men were not about to turn around and identify themselves and pound their chest as who was who. That wasn't in their style. That wasn't their way. They were all in it together. Secondly, and I think the most importantly, whether John Bradley was in the first flag raising or the second, and I know James Bradley has been vilified by some in the press as riding his father's coattails that never actually existed. I'm sorry. I say hogwash to that. Absolutely hogwash. The reason being is John Bradley was still there. He was still there where so few humans, much less Americans, would have the courage to be. Whether, again, it was Hank Hansen or, or Harlan Block, does it really matter? Those soldiers, both of them were there. Whether they were physically in that spot at the time of the photograph was taken is being debated through current times. But it still doesn't take away from the reality of the fate that those men would face. Because it was ironic, as James Bradley wrote, that of those six men, in terms of what their individual fates were, ultimately, it appears that they may have represented the thousands of Marines who were on that island and what their outcome was. Because half of them would come off the island, barely, if alive at all. A significant portion of them would come off severely injured. Some would come off physically looking fine, but mentally would not survive in the years to come. And some, like James Bradley's father, John Bradley, would appear to be fit and fine in every way. But clearly the horror and the atrocities of what that man and those Marines witnessed for the taking of Iwo Jima, they would never be the same. And I'm not arguing that what they did was more important or that what they did was in far greater danger than what any other American soldier or allied soldier faced in any of the theaters of the Second World War or any conflict for that matter. But the fact remains that as they attempted to take that island over, they found out that, no, there wasn't 13,000 defenders. There were 22,000. Then if they weren't on the island, where were they? And that was the problem. 
the Japanese were not on the island. They were in the island. As Bradley and other military historians writing about the Second World War, amongst those Stephen Ambrose, John Keegan, and others, that there would be identified over 1,400 rooms in that island were dug out by the Japanese for their convenience and their comfort. There were various levels. There were two sets of parallel tunnels. There was a bomb bunker. They had running electricity. They had heat and a rudimentary form of air conditioning. In short, this was literally a small fortress. And that's why I said earlier that they were determined to fight truly to the last human being standing. In the end, as the island was, the fight for it slogged on for over a month, there would be 25,851 casualties, 7,000 dead, almost all the 22,000 plus Japanese defenders were killed. And of those Japanese, only 261 surrendered. And how ironic, as Bradley writes in his book, page 137 of Flags of Our Father, that almost all soldiers, regardless of origin, tend to utter the same final word in their own language when they realize that death is enveloping, that death is taking them in, that they are losing the battle to hang on to their life, their final word, again, regardless of language, is mother or mom. So that is just one of the many islands that had to be taken in order to eventually plan for the final invasion of the Japanese homeland, which was scheduled to take Operation Olympic on November 1st, 1945. But the deaths in the tens of thousands, the injuries in the greater tens of thousands was horrifying allied leaders around the globe. If this is how bad, how brutal, how inhumane the Japanese are fighting for these islands that they once took over from another country, how much more difficult is it going to be to actually try to take the Japanese islands proper, their actual home islands? Because if they're going to fight to the death, then literally to own the occupy the Japanese islands to eliminate their capacity to make war truly meant that every Japanese person would have to be killed or taken prisoner of war. The thought of having to do this after already fighting since 1941 for America, our other allies fighting back as early as 1939, it was beyond frustrating and upsetting. So with that, the islands were continuing to be fought for, for, fought for only of strategic importance. Iwo Jima was one of them. The island of Tinian was another. But not every island again was taken because you didn't have to. Once the Allies had eliminated any kind of response from the Japanese Navy and the Japanese Air Force was all but eliminated, the Allies could actually skip islands that were occupied by the Japanese because without a Navy or Air Force, those Japanese would be basically harmless to us. This is part of the reason why, for example, the average person with a halfway decent knowledge of World War II, of course, has heard of Iwo Jima. Most, however, have never heard of Chichijima. That is yet another island that was occupied by the Japanese. But by and large, we didn't fight for it because we didn't have to. We could skip it 
to get to another island of greater strategic importance. So again, that is what the Allies are facing as they fight every other island or so towards the Japanese Empire's home base. At this time, because even though, again, this is world history, I would like us to take a turn back, however, to the United States because of an invention that looks like it's going to come into fruition that truly is going to change the landscape of the Second World War, truly to bring it to a close, as well as to impact warfare as they knew it then for all time to come. And that was an experiment that was being done amongst how many hundreds of thousands of many experiments being done back in the United States over four different areas around the lower 48 states known as the Manhattan Project. It was a scientific experiment being conducted and pushed by the military that employed and used over 100,000 people. They had unparalleled privileges to test different elements, to be able to conduct explosive tests. They had unparalleled privileges, but they also had extremely limited freedom. The American general responsible for managing this entire complex set of experiments was none other than Leslie R. Groves, a two-star general at the time, who, after building the Pentagon in far less time than anybody had predicted, what then became the world's largest office building to date. It is not as though because he had a blank check from the government that more or less he had, it, he had Easy Street. Here he was on Easy Street. Not at all. He had his difficulties, one of them being the fact that his lead scientist, Dr. J. Robert Oppenheimer, was married, which may give some kind of stability to the man's life. But the problem was is he had a girlfriend. Well, the moral implications of the girlfriend Groves could have cared less about. It's the fact that his girlfriend, Jean Tatlock, was actually a card-holding communist. And, and Groves had to juggle that, that relationship as well because he couldn't afford to lose Dr. Oppenheimer under any circumstances. The problem, too, is that what the Manhattan Project was seeking to do was, was to separate two cores of an element that, when brought together, could create what was then still only conjecture of what became what would become known as an uncontrollable chain reaction. The impossible, as everybody seemed to call it through the 1920s and 30s, ultimately became possible, or at least closer to being possible, on that famous afternoon of December 2nd, 1942, in the stag fields of the University of Chicago. Just a few years ago, I had the opportunity to stand in that exact same spot where Enrico Fermi and his team successfully created an extremely short-lived controlled chain reaction. Because they could make a short-range controlled one, the implication was clear that an uncontrolled chain reaction could have beyond magnificent and awesome consequences. The scientists, many of them being, of course, pacifists at heart, clearly was looking at the energy implications for human consumption. Groves and his men had different uses for that. 
controlled state, a controlled chain reaction, as it does now throughout different areas in the United States, can't allow us to flip our lights on, can't allow submarines our, in our nuclear-powered submarines to stay underwater now for months at a time. Nuclear reactors are powering a variety of different things in the American military as well as throughout the United States. But right now, all Groves wanted to know is if you put enough of these two elements together and bring them together almost like two halves of a hamburger bun, could you create that uncontrollable chain reaction? The initial answer seemed to be yes, because if that was the case, the amount of power and destruction that that bomb could create, nobody at this time had the calculations for. Nobody could predict just how unbelievably powerful a bomb of that type would ultimately be. To get an idea, the kind of strain and stress that Groves on the military side and Oppenheimer on the scientific side were under individually, as well as they tried to forge a relationship, working relationship with one another. I encourage you again, either now or after this podcast, to go again to your search engine and type in the name of this movie, Fat Man and Little Boy. If, of course, you want to see the movie, I, I at this point, I forgot how many times I've seen the movie, uh, I'm embarrassed to admit, but I don't even, you don't even need to see the whole movie. Just type in Fat Man and Little Boy, and then after that, trailer. So Fat Man, just as its name implies, phonetic spelling, F-A-T-M-A-N, and Little Boy, L-I-T-T-L-E-B-O-Y. Even if you just see the two to three minute trailer, you will have at least a glimpse of why of the atmosphere of the Manhattan Project and why so many considered it impossible. The elements that the two men were trying to bring together at first was uranium that would wind up in the in the little boy bomb and the other was one of the stepchildren of uranium as it decays that being in the fat man bomb far more powerful with much less material needed the uranium bomb the problem was is that uranium is an extremely rare earth metal it's, a, it's nearly impossible to find, but it is out there. And there's areas where it is in fairly decent quantity. One of them in a mine called Shinkaloboy in Africa, and another in St. Joachimstal in the Czechoslovakian region, which at this time was under Hitler's control. So Groves and his boys could only go to the mines of Shinkaloboy and see if they could get their hands on the uranium batches and fields that were known to exist there. Uranium by itself, as powerful as it is because of its size, it is, to our knowledge, as of this recording, is the largest naturally occurring atom on Earth. By itself, the uranium atom is so unbelievably heavy with 238 electrons spinning around it, it's just unbelievably powerful that that atom by itself, if you could somehow microscopically, of course, put an at a uranium atom on a given surface and throw a grain of sand right next to it, as close to it as you could get, as you could get it uh, 
to the atom, you would find that that uranium atom, because of the power within it, actually could make that grain of sand twitch. Now, if you could take roughly 15 pounds of uranium and separate it out into two spheres and bring them together, what would you have? You'd have uranium-238 and nothing would happen except for that isotope. That isotope known as U-235 is inherently extremely unstable. If they could get, separate 235 from 238 and get enough of it together, could that material, when cut in half and then brought together at lightning speed, could that create the uncontrollable bomb that they were, chain reaction that they were looking for? That again, they didn't know because here was the problem. U-235 is only about 0.2% of all uranium. And that's why some of the largest buildings on earth would eventually be built in areas around the United States in order to try to separate U-235 from its unbelievably slightly heavier sister, the U-238. Could they separate those two out? That would be the race for the next few years as World War II raged on. Meanwhile, the Allies were getting together, Allied leaders, and they were demanding Japan's unconditional surrender, just like they were demanding of Germany and Italy. But again, as I said earlier, Fighting Japan was a completely different animal than fighting Germany and Italy even combined. Japan and surrender were not to go in the same sentence. Meanwhile, as Japan is fighting to the last man standing, the United States had a breakthrough on July 16, 1945 at 5.29 a.m. and 45 seconds into that minute when the United States brought the world into the nuclear age. When we return then for our 28th podcast in our second series of world history, the second part, excuse me, in our series in world history too, we're going to take a look at what that tiny amount of uranium, small enough to fit in the human hand, how ultimately destructive that element would ultimately prove to be. Thanks for listening.